Warning, this show may contain adult content, language, and humor and is intended for mature audiences. If that's not you, please stop listening now. Nothing you hear on Sex and Science Hour is intended as medical advice, financial advice, legal advice, therapy, or really anything other than entertainment. Please take everything you hear with a grain of salt. Oh, and if you're hearing us on an affiliate network, the ideas and views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the network you're listening on or of any sponsors or affiliate products you might hear about on the show. Now that all that's out of the way, let's start the show. This is Sex and Science Hour with Brian Sovereign and Dr. Stephanie Murphy. Get your freak on. My freak's on, and I hope yours is too. My it's flag's flying, that's for sure. Good. Fly that freak, fret, freak flag high. <laughs> Say that three times fast. Yeah. We're in Fraggle Rock here. <laughs> this is Sex and Science Hour. Happy Friday, everybody. Woo. Hope you had a great week. And we got a great show planned for you today. Now, Sex and Science Hour, in case you don't know, comes out every week, and we it's exactly what it sounds like. It's an hour show, maybe a little more, because we do our after show as well, which you'll find out about later. Uh, but we talk about sex and science topics. And to start out tonight, I have a topic that actually incorporates both. You ready for this, Brian? Let's do it. And by the way, I'm Stephanie, and he's Brian, right? Oh, I thought I got to be Stephanie tonight. Yeah. Well, that's Later. after the show. Right. Yeah. After, yeah. Okay. okay. All right. <laughs> so I got a topic Ooh. that actually incorporates both here. Um, research suggests that sexual appeals in ads don't sell products or brands. What? Now this go. You've heard the adage that sex sells, right? Everybody's heard that. Yeah, I live off of that. <laughs> you do. How do you live off of that? <laughs> okay. Well, on my own show, Sovereign Tech. Yeah. Like, there's women moaning right and left. I mean, there's sex going on the whole thing. Like, and are in, you trying to sell something like a product or a brand? You're no, not really- me. You're, you're trying to sell yourself. You always try to sell yourself. But anyway. Indeed. Yeah. I, well, I'm trying to to sell the show, you know, that this is fun. This is a good time, right? I definitely think people find it interesting. But um, this research might be quite revealing into, uh, into what you have going on as well. All right. So, let's do it. So this is actually from uh, the Illinois News Bureau from uh, by Craig Chamberlain. And he says, could it be that sex actually does not sell? An analysis of nearly 80 Advertising studies published over more than three decades suggest that that is the case. We found that people remember ads with sexual appeals more than those without, but that the effect doesn't extend to brands or products that are featured in the ads, says University of Illinois advertising professor John Wirtz, the lead author of the research. Wirtz and his co-authors conducted a first-of-its-kind meta-analysis, and a meta-analysis, of course, is a study of studies. So they take a bunch of different studies, because one study can be wrong. You know, they, they try to do a bunch of experiments, but one study can be wrong. Sure. Uh, but, you know, usually a trend measured across many different studies is less likely to be wrong. Mm -hmm. So they looked at 78 different peer-reviewed studies looking at the effects of sexual appeals in advertising. And the way they defined a sexual appeal in advertising was uh, sexual appeals included models who were fully or partially nude, models who were engaged in sexual touching or in positions that suggested a sexual encounter was imminent, sexual innuendos, and sexual embeds, 
which are partially hidden words or pictures that communicate a sexual message. Oh, those are prominent. People don't even know when they see those a lot of times. But anyway, I guess that's the idea, right? It's almost like appealing to your unconscious. Your unconscious picks it up, but your conscious mind doesn't. So anyway, um, that's how they defined sexual ads. So anyway, uh, let's see. The research found that there were not that not only were study participants no more likely to remember the brands featured in ads with sexual appeals, they were more likely to have a negative attitude towards those brands, Wirtz said. So basically, if you use sex in your ads, it people tune it out, they don't remember it, and when they do remember it, they're not likely to have a positive memory of it. Wow. Okay, tell me more. Participants also showed no greater interest in making a purchase. We found literally zero effect on participants' intention to buy products in ads with a sexual appeal. Well, because usually the person has to go jerk off and then they forget about it. But <laughs> <laughs> Right. It's, it, it sells them on having sex with themselves, but not on buying the product. <laughs> no, I mean, I think people, I think it's so, com- well, we'll get into the analysis later. Here's what yes. they said. We found literally zero effect on participants' intentions to buy products in ads with a sexual appeal, where it said. This assumption that sex sells... Well, no, according to our study, it doesn't. There is no indication that there's a positive effect. Uh, The strongest finding was probably the least surprising, which is that males, on average, like ads with sexual appeals and females dislike them, Wirtz said. However, we were surprised at just how negative female attitudes were towards these ads. When not separating the results by gender, the effect of sexual appeals on participants' attitudes towards ads was not significant, he said. But separately, they're just going in completely opposite directions. Okay, so here's what he's saying. When you break it down by male and female categories, the men like sexual advertising. Women have a negative opinion of sexualized advertising. And when you put them together, it averages out to be like a neutral effect across Mm. the population. Okay. Um. I don't I get I would assume that if women have a negative impression of an ad, uh, they are not going to be more likely to buy a product. But if men have a positive impression of an ad because they like the sexy sexiness of it, are they going to be more likely to buy the product? It seems to be saying no. Um Okay, the average number of participants in each individual study was about 225, but by using a meta-analysis, we could combine studies and conduct some analyses with more than 5,000 participants. In one analysis, more than 11,000, Wirtz said. This means that our results present a more accurate picture of what happens when someone sees an ad with a sexual appeal. The implications of the research for advertising practitioners were mixed. Given that ads with sexual appeals are remembered more, and advertisers want people to remember their ads, Wirtz said, Yet they don't appear to help in selling brands or products. Certainly, the evidence indicates that the carryover effect to liking the ads doesn't influence whether they're going to make a purchase, he said. This could be one reason why a national restaurant chain known in recent years for selling its sandwiches with scantily clad models in suggestive poses made a very public break with that approach in a three-minute commercial in the last Super Bowl, Wirt said. If the sexy ads had been effective, it's unlikely that the company or ad agency would have made such a drastic change, he said. When product is moving, people don't make changes. And that chain was 
I remember the ads because I've it seen Carl's them. Carl's Jr. Is that what they're talking about? Maybe. Yeah, Hardee's, that's, that well, sounds Hardee's right. And Carl's Jr. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds. They about had right. the infamous one with Jessica Simpson a while back, right, where she was washing the cars. So, or well, I, wait, I don't know if that was the same one. But there's the one where the gal's riding the bull and she's wearing like a bandana for yeah. a top and eating a burger and all that. Yeah. yeah, and she takes a giant bite out of this really juicy burger yeah. and it drips onto her cleavage and stuff like that. Yeah. Now, yeah, that was a very memorable ad. But yet, when I was thinking of it, I remembered the ad, but I didn't remember what product it was for. Oh. Or brand. So there you go. I guess that just proves the point. Well, I worked for a company <laughs> that had contracts with Carl's Jr. and Hardy's, so... Oh, so there like, you're more so likely I to remember. I kind of remember it yeah. because of that, but yeah. So now, what did you think of that ad campaign? Because it was kind of controversial because it was so sexualized. Uh, myself, especially at the time, uh-huh. I really wasn't complaining. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I was... <laughs> uh, I thought it was a little bit... I don't know. I mean, it just—it it was kind of entertaining. It made me want to watch, but it didn't make me want to eat their sandwiches. You know? Yeah. I generally don't. I I can see where they're coming from. The yeah. Women, the women in the study who didn't like the sexualized ads because it is almost like using the feet. I almost hate to say this idea because I know how it sounds, but it's like they're. It, these ad executives, whoever they are, probably like mostly old men, are exploiting these young female bodies and using them to like sell a product. Yeah. And everybody has those bodies, but it's like they're sexualizing them in order to sell a product. And it just feels like it cheapens the humanity of all women a little bit. You know, I could see where the people who think that are coming from. Yeah. I try not to let let it bother me too much and just live my life and whatever. Yeah. But I can see where people who say that are coming from. Yeah. I so. All right. So here's the thing. I think. OK, here, here's an example. Um, take, for example, like magazines, magazine covers for like, I don't know, low rider, like a motorcycle magazine or car, like hot rod for cars or something like that. They always put some scantily clad voluptuous woman you know, on the cover. Yes. And, and she doesn't come with a car, by the way. Uh, right. No, I, you know, nice headlights, nice body. And the car looks all right, too. You yeah, know, right. yeah. But, <laughs> but um, I think so. So that definitely makes you look at the magazine and it might make you pick it up to see if there's more pictures of her or something in there. Most people can't afford the price tag of whatever the hell's in those magazines. You know, usually the best thing they could buy is is maybe some of the ads. I don't know. I, I feel like I, I get the point that they're making. Like maybe you, you can't see the direct sales figures where it doesn't necessarily sell. But I think at the end of the day, almost everything is sex and almost everything is selling, uh, you know, as, as far as that goes. Um, I mean, I disagree with that. I mean, you know, the, the, the ad campaigns that I tend to remember the most are ones that are funny. I think humor sells. That's true. No, humor does sell. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right about that. But the thing is, it's hard to come up with a clever, funny ad campaign that's really going to get people on your side and being sympathetic to it. Yeah. So, all right. Well, here, here's an example, okay, where I think where sex really sells, you can go two ways about it. You either have to have sex going on full, full, you know, full stop, or it has to be, it has to be near subliminal. For example, double mint gum. Okay, the brilliance of having those twin gals selling double mint gum. Oh my gosh. Like that's, that's it's really funny that you mentioned that. Uh-huh. Because yeah, I I agree with you. So sure. obviously the famous ad campaign for double mint gum, it's the tagline double your pleasure, double your double fun. Double your fun, and it's two twin 
hot twin girls. Yeah, doing but, all but kinds of things. But not over the top hot. They're like more like wholesome, but also hot. Girl next door hot, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> girl next door hot twin girls. Right. And they're doing a bunch of things together. And I think they might go on a double date at some point with like twin guys or two friends or something like something that. Something like that. Yeah. So, I mean, the obviously the the suggestion is, hey, you could have maybe a threesome with these twins or something like right. that. Everybody's kind of thinking that, but they're not saying it. Yeah. Now, I was just working on uh, an audiobook. I'm an audiobook narrator. Mm-hmm. I, among, I'm a voice actor, but one of the things I do is au- narrate audiobooks. And in the audiobook, it was describing, it was written by these women that own a, a woman-owned sex toy store. Okay. And they sell vibrators. And some of those vibrators have double, like things because it's like a rabbit vibrator where it has like one piece that's almost like a dildo that kind of rotates inside of a woman okay and then on the outside there's a a little bunny ear piece that stimulates the clitoris yeah and they had like a mail order catalog in the early aughts that they were advertising these this these type of products in and they put the tagline double your pleasure yeah. Now they got a cease and desist letter from Wrigley's Spearmint Gum or whatever, or right, whatever they use the trademark uh, line. Yeah. Right. And they said you have to stop using that because our brand is a wholesome brand, and we can't have you being associated with us. Uh-huh. And their lawyer wrote back and said, "Ha, that's really funny that you think you're a wholesome brand by using these teenage girls, you yeah. know, and, <laughs> and saying yeah. double your pleasure. Yeah. Who are you kidding? <laughs> All right, so." Well, all right. It's really now, interesting that you brought that specific example up. Yeah, sure. Now, now here's the here's the opposite end, which is full stop. Okay, which you're gonna have to. Um, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna reenact this. It's not gonna be the best thing for audio, okay, not exactly. Okay. But I want you to guess what I am advertising. Okay. Okay. Ah, uh, ah. Uh, Herbal essences. Uh, yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> I'm just rubbing my head, and I'm fucking bald. And I'm rubbing my head, and and yeah, I just the, start moaning. The woman in the shower washing her hair, and she's having listen, an orgasm. Right. Listen. So when good. I had when I had hair, and I used shampoo, I wanted to buy that shit. <laughs> like that's how hot. That's how that's how good that that advertising. I mean, I wanted to buy. I remember buying it for my girlfriend. It's like here you go, honey. You know, I was all over it. Are you kidding? Yeah. That worked like there was no tomorrow because it was full stop. You knew. I mean, whether you hurt. I mean, you had you had enough. It, it was far enough. Um, to, to it wasn't just like a, a gal riding a bull and is being suggestive. No, there's moaning. Someone's like really, really feeling pleasure. Yeah. That sticks with you. And you remembered exactly what it was. Yeah, it uh, did. And I want, I used herbal essences on my hair. Too. Damn right. And it was great. It smelled great. You know, it was a good product too. That helps. I'm sure. Oh but yeah. The com- yeah. Commercials were very creative. Right. So, but that's my point is that you, you can't half ass it. Because then I think their studies are absolutely accurate in America. And actually, I imagine that's where the bulk of the study takes place. Because mm-hmm. in, in Europe and other places, I mean, you know, they show tits, the whole, the whole thing. I mean, they, they, you know. <laughs> right. I wonder how well that works. Well, right. So, but in any case, in America, everything's kind of half-assed. So I think people, it almost creates a confusion. 
to where you don't know, am I offended? Am I turned on? Should I be excited? Wait a minute. No, uh, I shouldn't be excited. I'm a good American boy. Well, you know, something. I think the uh, the herbal essences, part of it was that that was actually also kind of funny. It was sexy, but it was yes. also funny. Yep, it was both. And unexpected. Yep. Like, unexpected is funny. Yep. So, and yeah, it is unexpected because, you know, normally you're taking a shower. It's the most boring thing in the world. You have to wash your hair. You have to soap up your body. But (laughs) this woman is really enjoying it and really getting into it. That's something different. So I think that was part of the appeal that it did have also an element of humor to it. Yeah. That's why it was so successful. And just one more example would be Axe, Um, like Axe Body Spray or whatever. When they did their Bomb Chickawawa ad campaign, Mm -hmm. sold me all the way. I mean, what was I, that? I don't remember that they, one. They had they had the whole song. If you ever watched the music video, the music video is fucking hot as hell. Um, <laughs> but there's a whole song called Bomb Chicka Wah Wah. Uh, like a porn music. Yeah. Yep. Bomb Chicka Wah Wah. Uh-huh. You know, and everything. And, and they just like, they'd have moments where uh, a guy, I don't know, where a woman will just like dive onto a guy or something. Personally, it would have been great if it was a woman diving onto a woman. But, <laughs> you know. Yeah, well, they can't get gay on TV. Right. Uh, another another great one that, that sells are actually men's uh, uh, hair um, ads just in magazines where like it'll be the guy. It's, it's for like a men's hair, you know, hair coloring. Mm-hmm. And a woman will just be kind of like a secretary style woman. And look, I, I get it. it. Some of this shit's deplorable, right? You know, to, to be, you know, kind of, kind of playing up to these conventional, dare I say, even patriarchal kind of roles and everything. I, you know, don't, don't misunderstand well, me. Stereotypes are a quick way to get a point, get a point a across. message across, I guess, yes, in a exactly. short amount of time. Right. Okay. Um, but you know, it'll be a secretary gal, like just holding the guy's tie, you know, I mean, and, I guarantee you that sold tons of hair, you know, of men's hair coloring, right? Comic book covers. You'll, you'll sell a comic in a heartbeat, you know, just, just put the right kind of gal on the cover. I mean, and, and it's going to sell. So, yeah. I, I mean, I suppose you could say the same about men sometimes with like romance novels or sure. <laughs> like a shirtless women, pirate yeah, yeah. man on the cover. Yeah, I mean, put Fabio on with there. The and wind look. blowing in his hair. And what about, I can't believe it's not I, butter. Look at the stock <laughs> price if I can't believe it's not butter spray. I mean, holy shit. <laughs> it's not even a good product. No, doesn't uh. matter. So I don't buy it. Sex does sell. You got to do it right. Yeah, I think that's the takeaway. You got to do it right. And if you have some humor in there, it also doesn't hurt. Absolutely. Right. Stay tuned. Hopefully we sold you on our show. Um, <laughs> I think it works for Sex and Science Hour. Whoa. There's more coming up. It's in Stay the title. Tuned. It better. <laughs> if you're sold on Sex and Science Hour, you may want to join our private Facebook community. Just go to Facebook.com. Of course, you're, you're already there because most people are on Facebook Let me help. Let me help. Day. <laughs> Come on, keep oh. doing the ad. No. <laughs> <laughs> You're providing some background music. Yeah. That's nice. Okay, go to the search bar on Facebook and type in Sex and Science Hour Podcast Community. I know it's kind of a mouthful, but if you can manage to find the group, I will let you in and you can join us and discuss sex articles, science articles, suggest show prep, and meet other listeners. Uh, What's not to like about that? Use the word mouthful. Yeah. <laughs> what were you going to say, Brian? <laughs> use the word mouthful. Okay. Now back to the show. Subtle, very subtle. This is Sex and Science Hour. Oh yeah, you're subtle, aren't you? You think <laughs> you, you're subtle. You're subtle. I'm not subtle. <laughs> you're subtle. All right, Brian. For our science segment here, usually in segment two we do science. Okay. We have a psychological analysis of Trump supporters. Has oh, uncovered five key traits about them. Now, okay. Don't they just put like 4F for insane? <laughs> No, there's lots of, I mean, I, this is what I want to avoid in this article. Okay. Okay. Now I, 
I'll be a good boy. <laughs> well, you don't have to be a good boy. You're not a dog, but <laughs> wait, I know that's not what you said this morning. No, 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 I'm serious. You said it. You said you're like a dog. <laughs> I just meant it in like a like you're very loyal and sweet, and I uh-huh. love dogs. Dogs uh-huh. are my favorite animal uh-huh. companion. A little doge. All right. You're better than a dog. Well, let's Way carry better. on. Let's carry on. <laughs> I did say that. Okay. <laughs> anyway, what I wanted to say is I want to start out this story by this is not like I'm not like bashing people who supported Trump. I recognize that this is from the raw story. So this is from a, you know, pro- democratic kind of progressive it's got a slant. bent. Obviously, they're not going to like Trump voters. That's their political enemy. So they're going to be coming at this from a certain uh, perspective that is kind of like, oh, these people are the enemy. They're weirdos. Let's psychoanalyze them to figure out what could possibly going be going on in their demented little brains that would make them vote for Trump. Right. That's what right. that's the perspective they're coming from when we're starting out this article. I, I don't really want to engage in that. I'm not really interested in judging people or psychologizing them. I don't view people who voted for Trump or supported him as an alien species, really. It's just that I just think this is interesting. Aliens. <laughs> Stop it. Okay. <laughs> I just think this is interesting because it shows that there are some personality, like some of the personality traits that they're ascribing to people who supported Trump, I find really interesting. And I okay. want to know if you think there's any truth to this. All right. So anyway, from the raw story. But we're not going to treat them like aliens, even though that's how they treat everybody that exists outside of the... Sorry, sorry we're, we're not going there. Okay. All right. Let's well, go. I mean, yeah, that's true, but it doesn't mean you have to stoop to their level. I, we're You're all right. human beings here, right? That's right. And we don't want to get into the thinking of like us versus them. That's I right. I think that avoiding that kind of thinking is helpful. So I don't want to get into this enemy dynamic, but I just thought this was interesting. So anyway, here we go. From the Raw Story. The lightning fast ascent and political invincibility of Donald Trump has left many experts baffled and wondering, how did we get here? Any accurate and succinct answer to that question must only not only focus on Trump himself, but also on his uniquely loyal supporters. Given their extreme devotion and unwavering admiration for their highly unpredictable and often inflammatory leader, some have turned to the field of psychology for scientific explanations based on precise quantitative data and established theoretical frameworks. So basically, like a lot of people are wondering, how did this person get elected? Right. Mm-hmm. Who who are the people and what were their motivations that elected him? And what can we learn from looking at personality traits that they might have in common? OK. Although analysis and studies by psychologists and neuroscience have provided many thought provoking explanations for his enduring support, the accounts of their different experts often vary greatly, sometimes overlapping and other times conflicting. However insightful these critiques may be, it's apparent that more research and examination is needed to hone in on the exact psychological and social factors underlying this particular human behavior. In a recent review paper published by the Journal of Social and Political Psychology, psychologist and UC Santa Cruz professor Thomas Pettigrew argues that five major psychological phenomena can help explain this exceptional political event. One, authoritarian personality syndrome. Mm -hmm. Authoritarianism refers to the advocacy or enforcement of strict obedience to authority at the expense of personal freedom and is commonly associated with a lack of concern for the opinions or needs of others. 
Authoritarian personality syndrome, a well-studied and globally prevalent condition, is a state of mind that is characterized by belief in total and complete obedience to one's authority. Those with the syndrome often display aggression toward out-group members, submissiveness to authority, resistance to new experiences, and a rigid, hierarchical view of society. The syndrome is often triggered by fear, making it easy for leaders who exaggerate threats or fear to gain their allegiance. Although authoritarian personality is found among liberals, it is more common among right wing, uh, the right wing around the world. President Trump's speeches are laced with absolutist terms like losers and complete disasters and are naturally appealing to those with the syndrome. While research showed that Republican voters in the U.S. scored higher than Democrats on measures of authoritarianism before Trump emerged on the political scene, a 2016 Politico survey found that high authoritarians greatly favored then-candidate Trump, which led to a correct prediction that he would win the election despite the polls saying otherwise. So they're saying that people who are authoritar- who hold authoritarian beliefs and defer to authority are, were the ones who supported Trump. Mm. And that Trump reinforced that by using terms like, you don't want to be with the losers. You don't want to be with them. You want to be with me. I'm not the loser. I'm going to be the winner. And now this is really interesting. The, the, I'm going to read again the, te, uh, the characteristics of authoritarian personality syndrome, because I've never heard of this before. But it says, those with the syndrome display aggression toward out-group members, right? So we have us versus them. Okay. Aggression towards them. You got to stick with the group and screw anybody else. Yep. Submissiveness to authority, resistance to new experiences, and a rigid hierarchical view of society. Now, resistance to new experiences, that sounds like basically conservatism. What is what else is conservatism except traditionalism? Traditional, yeah. yeah, going back to the past, not toward the future, not changing things in society, right. going back to a better time in the past. And also, um, the submissiveness to authority and the aggression toward outgroup members. I've never seen so much language come about that was like, you know, the alpha and beta males calling people cucks, right? Mm, That's yeah. like, you know, putting them in a submissive role. I, I think there's something to that when you when you hear the characteristics of submissiveness to authority and and that kind of thing. Sure. So um, I just thought that was really interesting. Number two, social dominance orientation. Social dominance orientation, SDO, which is distinct but related to authoritarian personality syndrome, refers to people who have a preference for the social hierarchy of groups, specifically with a structure in which the high-status groups have dominance over the low-status ones. Those with SDO are typically dominant, tough-minded, and driven by self-interest. In Trump's speeches, he appeals to those with SDO, by repeatedly making a clear distinction between groups that have a generally higher status in society, white, and those groups that are typically thought of as belonging to lower status, immigrants and minorities. So social dominance orientation means that they side with the dominant group. Okay. Um, let's see. Uh, in a 2016 survey study of 406 American adults published this year in the journal Personality and Individual Differences, found that those who scored high on both SDO and authoritarianism were those who intended to vote for Trump in the election. So you side with the dominant group, you think of things in society in terms of a hierarchy, and you defer to authority, and you want to be with the winner. 
and you you have this clear us versus them kind of mentality. Yeah, not, are you seeing the pictures start to come together? Yeah, I'm not hearing a lot of free thinking or free spiritedness uh, going on here. You know. Yeah, I mean, like I can't the, picture right. a lot of artists. <laughs> you know, right? Kind of, of course, voting That's for the Trump. opposite of the, this personality yeah, type, right? Yeah. Uh, number three, prejudice. It would be grossly unfair and inaccurate to say that every one of Trump's supporters have prejudice against ethnic and religious minorities. But it would be equally inaccurate to say that many do not. It is a well-known fact that the Republican Party, going at least as far back to Richard Nixon's Southern strategy, used strategies that appealed to bigotry, such as lacing speeches with dog whistles, code words that signaled prejudice toward minorities that were designed to be heard by racists but no one else. So the concept of a dog whistle, have you heard of that before, Brian? Yeah. A dog whistle is like, basically you blow on There's a literal dog whistle where you can blow on it. It seems like it's not making a sound, but that's just because humans can't hear that frequency, but dogs can. Mm -hmm. So only certain things can hear it, right? A, A dog whistle, the figure of speech, is when in a public speech or some rhetoric, you include certain keywords and phrases like language culture borders or something like perhaps blood and soil. Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah. Or um, even so- stuff like gang members. Sure. And those are phrases that are designed for people who have uh, bigoted or racist beliefs to pick up on and know what you're saying. Mm-hmm. You're saying when you say gang members, you're saying black people without saying black people. Right. But only the racists are going to pick up on that. Right. So dog whistling is one of the tactics, I guess, that um, was included among those people who uh, Trump appealed to. Um, While the dog whistles of the past were more subtle, Trump's were shockingly distinct at times or direct at times. There's no denying that he routinely appeals to bigoted supporters when he calls Muslims dangerous and Mexican immigrants rapists and murderers often in a blanketed fashion. Perhaps unsurprisingly, a new study has shown that support for Trump is correlated with a standard scale of modern racism. So they're saying, like, look, not all Trump supporters are racist, but probably all racists are Trump support. He is the mm-hmm. is the preferred candidate of the people who really are deeply bigoted. And, I, you know... There's a lot of rhetoric that goes around nowadays of like, oh, this person's racist, that person's racist. I think, you know, most people have some kind of biases in terms of race and prejudice. It's really hard not to. Everybody does to some extent. So it's not like it's not like anyone who admits that they're a racist is like an automatic monster and KKK member. No, we all have little biases and hopefully we're trying to improve and we're trying to be aware of them Mm -hmm. so that we can get rid of them because that's what we hopefully want to do, you know, just to get along better with everybody. Yeah. I think people would flip side that one though and say, yeah, but just liberals would hate white people or something like that. You know, like that, that, that it's not, I don't, I don't know that, that that would look i'm not a trump supporter at all okay i mean just flat out i'm just not but i'm just saying that that one that one's a little weak because i think that that an argument could be made that that gets turned around 
Uh, and, and there's a lot of, uh, you know, like racism or something towards either white people or men or something like this. Like that's the argument that we can made. I'm not saying that's the reality. Well, that's the, that's going to come up later in the article. Actually. Okay. Yeah, All right. So we will talk about sure. that. Actually, maybe I'll just skip to that relative deprivation. It's called relative deprivation. Okay. Relative deprivation refers to the experience of being deprived of something to which one believes they are entitled. It is the discontent felt when some one compares their position in life to others who they feel are equal or inferior, but have unfairly had more success than them. Common explanations for Trump's popularity among non-bigoted voters involve economics. There is no doubt that some Trump supporters are simply angry that American jobs are being lost to Mexico and China, which is certainly understandable, although these loyalists often ignore the fact that some of these careers are actually lost due to the accelerating pace of automation. These Trump supporters are experiencing relative deprivation and are common among the swing states like Ohio, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. This kind of deprivation is specifically referred to as relative as opposed to absolute because the feeling is often based on a skewed perception of what one is entitled to. So they're saying that that Trump supporters feel entitled. Is that? Yeah, they feel entitled and they feel like they're being oppressed, but they're not really oppressed. Yeah, is basically I, what they're saying. Right. And and yeah, the oppression comes from like, you know, maybe they think affirmative action or something right. they perceive, is working against them. Yeah. I mean, th- this is another case where I feel like the argument could totally get twisted around to work against the liberals, you know, because they could just say, well, no, they're the ones that feel entitled, like they deserve safe spaces or they deserve this, uh, you know, whatever that that ends up happening, happening mm-hmm. to be. This is. I mean, we we said it in the beginning that this is very slanted. Like the first one, the authoritarian one, that made a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but some of these others, I think they could be used both ways. And it really, honestly, it lends it lends itself to the fact that look, I think honestly, if you're trying to look for a leader of any shape or stripe, or if you're looking for government action or politicians to, to be involved problems. to solve your yeah. problems there may be common personality traits that voters and share. it's these yeah <laughs> yeah it's not just donald trump supporters yeah. it's voters across the board i think uh, i agree with that actually i mean look you know there's an electoral college map that mm-hmm. shows basically if did not vote was a choice it would have won the electoral college and the election more yes, people right. didn't did vote, not vote for anybody. The majority did not vote. You're right. Then voted for Trump or Clinton. Yeah, it was like 43% or something. Yeah. I, or, yeah, I forget what the exact number was, but it was in that range. Exactly. So it's important to keep that in perspective. There's a lot of studies about partisan politics and mm-hmm. what do these politi- what do these voters do and who are these voters and what do they want? But Nobody ever pays attention to the non-voters. Why did they not vote? They're a huge demographic. They're bigger than any of the political ones, but nobody pays attention to them. And nobody draws a dichotomy between voters and non-voters. Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, let's be really, you know, I mean, you could say there might be some degree of one being worse than the other in certain aspects, but look, one candidate being worse than the other. Yeah. One candidate, maybe, or one party or however you want to break it down. I mean, it depends on the person and what they, you know, how they feel about it. But look, you know, it's, if there's an us versus them, 
it's the politicians versus the people yeah. <laughs> like Democrat or Republican, like Democrats and Republicans are, they're, they're two sides of the same coin, yeah. you know, and you're still, it's still that coin and nothing, nothing really changes. Nothing ever fucking changes. Yeah, uh, and, absolutely. I completely, which is why I didn't vote in this election and I didn't get involved as much as I could. It touched me, you know, it did, <laughs> it did affect me, the election. And sure. it was incredibly contentious, polarizing. I felt it, its effects in, you know, social media and that kind of thing. Yeah. But I tried as hard as I could not to get involved with it because I know that politics is not um, good for my mental health. Right. And that's a constant that I've known for a long time. And I've tried to stick why, stick by it. And when I do stick by it, which I have pretty much, um, it makes me happier. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I don't know if there's any moral of the story, I guess, I guess that's it. But what did you think of these, of this psychological analysis? Well, like it was insightful or helped figure out what happened. Part of it's insightful, I think, but really it speaks to, I think it speaks to all voters, Mm -hmm. not just, or not all, but most voters, Mm -hmm. not just Trump supporters. Yeah. Well, the last one, and maybe the most interesting one was intergroup contact, which refers to contact with members of groups that are outside one's own, which has been experimentally shown, they say, to reduce prejudice. As such, it's important to note they say that there is growing evidence that Trump's white supporters have experienced significantly less contact with minorities than other Americans. For example, a 2016 study found that, quote, the racial and ethnic isolation of whites at the zip code level is one of the strongest predictors of Trump support. So basically, if you live in a white town where there's basically no people of color, you are more likely to have supported Trump in the election. So they're saying that when you when you talk to different people, it makes you more worldly. It makes you realize that they're not these bad monsters that they're mm-hmm. made out to be sometimes Mexicans, Muslims, Black Lives Matter, whatever, what have you. And, you know, it makes you more worldly and more tolerant. And as a result, you don't feel so afraid of others who are not like you. That that one might be more to the Trump supporter. Um, just because, you know, the other side supposedly is about more open borders or something along those lines and mm-hmm. get, and getting out there. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I think a lot of that, that thinking that you seem to get from Trump supporters where, you know, we can't let these people into the country or something is usually coming from people who haven't visited other countries, uh, because if they did, they'd see just how human, how just like you, they really are even Absolutely. in, even in, in Muslim, you know, predominantly Muslim countries and other areas. And believe me, I've been there. I know it's not that different. And yeah. a lot of the things that go on and that make the world go round and round work there just as well as they do in America. So, uh, yeah, yeah, I don't buy it. That's exactly what I was just about to ask you. Like, do you think traveling the world makes somebody more, uh, do, do you think it changes people? Absolutely. And you yeah. can see it across generations. Um, it doesn't matter if it was a person a hundred years ago, 50 years ago, or 10 years ago, or now you, it, you, I mean, it just, it's, you know, I mean, you, like you, you ever have that cool, like a, a family member that somehow just seems to kind of like let shit ride and, and seems to be really like, you know, kind of laid back or something like that. A lot of times they're either a surfer or they've traveled the world pretty good and they know, <laughs> right. you know, no, like there's no, there's no barbarians at the gates. Yeah. They're, they're really not there. Perspective that yeah. we're all walking around on this planet. We're all human beings and we all have certain things in common. Because Absolutely. Of that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad when I was young that I was able to travel so much uh, and definitely gave me a nice laid back attitude. Yeah, me too. Absolutely. All right. Well, you don't have time to go around the world. You only have like one minute left (laughs) because we're coming up on segment three. So stay tuned. We're coming up here on Sex and Science Hour. Sex segment next. 
everybody. I want to let you know uh, that Brian is not just a podcast host. He is actually an author as well. He just released his first book. It's called Dark Android. And here I thought you were going to say I was a sexy man, but all right, fine. (laughs) Well, I can't do it all at once. I was going to say that afterwards. All right. So tell people about your book real quick. So darkandroid.info, that's where you find the books. Dark Android 2017 edition, your no-nonsense guide to securing your device and reclaiming your privacy. Uh, It's only $2.99. You cannot beat the value you're going to get out of this. Is this, can my mom or grandma use this to secure her Android phone? Yes. Anybody of any tech level from zero to 10 can, can, this is helpful. And, and even if you're really tech savvy, this is a book that you can learn from and that can help out. And it's always good to brush up on the basics. So darkandroid.info. This is Sex and Science Hour. Welcome back to the show. We're in segment three now, which you know what that means. It's the sex segment. So, Brian, have you ever heard the the phrase non-attachment in like a Buddhist context? Yes. Very popular in a Buddhist context. What does non-attachment mean to you? Could you describe it succinctly? Uh, Well, to me, it's kind of different from a Buddhist context, but... What it means to me, we'll probably get into in the, in the article that I think you have. Uh, well, I do, but I want. I have an article here from the Elephant Journal mm-hmm. called "Why Non-Attachment Is One of the Keys to a Happy Life and Relationship." Uh-huh. So we're going to be exploring whether the concept of non-attachment can apply to our relationships and make us happier. But first of all, I want to define what non-attachment actually means, because a, a lot of people hear that and they're like, "What the fuck? Why wouldn't I want to be attached to my partner?" Aren't you supposed to, right? Like if you're not attached to them, it means you don't like them, right? (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah. So, I mean, in Buddhism, it means, you know, non-attachment. It's different from detachment. Like there's two opposites to attachment, detachment and non-attachment. Detachment means like cutting off all emotions and just like cutting off kind of everything from something. Mm -hmm. As to where non-attachment is still allowing for interaction with something, but you don't allow it to like kind of consume your life perhaps, or you allow it, whatever it is to have freedom of its own, you know, its own agency, its own movement, whatever. Um, in Buddhism, the concept of non-attachment is that you don't like internalize anything external because that way you don't experience pain and you're not like stuck to this earth or something like that. Right. The idea that like attachment leads to suffering. Yes. Yes, exactly. And all you have to do in order to not suffer is not be attached to things. Right. Which I'm sure it's way more complicated than this. Significantly. But to boil it down just really, really quickly, what it means to me is like, you know, if you if you're kind of attaching your happiness to things in your external environment that you can't always necessarily control. Mm -hmm. If those things go away or if they're people and they get sick or they die or whatever, then you're going to be sad because your happiness was attached to them and you couldn't keep them forever because you couldn't control whether they were there. Sure. So, you know, don't have that. Don't base your happiness on having things and having a tight grasp on them be happy within yourself make happiness an inside job and then you'll always be able to be happy and you can still enjoy things and people it's just that they're not required for your happiness because your happiness comes from within you yeah absolutely and that's not to say that well i'm, I'm curious to, to hear about what the article says but well let me say let me say what it means to me sure. first of all too non-attachment i think in relationships i agree with what you said about 
um, the element of letting things have and people have their own freedom, Mm -hmm. right? Like when I think about not being attached to a certain outcome for a situation or a relationship, it's like, okay, maybe I like this person, but if they don't feel the same way about me, you know, I, that's okay. I can accept that. I'm not going to, you know, have a mental breakdown because they don't reciprocate my feelings. Sure. Or for example, you know, this person, my friend lives in the same town as me, but you know, maybe for, for their own happiness, they need to move somewhere and I'm happy for them if they need to move, even though it means I won't get to see them as often, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm not attached to that person living near me and basing my happiness on it. So yeah, I mean, it, it evokes a little bit of like the, if you love something, let it go, you know, kind of thing. (laughs) Yeah, there's a few Osho who's not a very good person or who wasn't a very good person really? at all. There's a few different Osho like quotes that are certainly coming why to mind. Why does everyone quote Osho? Because they're dumb and they don't know that. No, why, and some, why was makes, Osho not a good person? O- Osho makes some some beautiful statements, so I don't blame people for quoting him. I'll quote him. Um, Osho wasn't a good. He, Osho, Osho was like a near literal terrorist. Uh, <laughs> I had no idea. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it's arguable that he was behind the first case of, of, I mean, and depending on how you want to look at this and what your ideological perspective is, but he engaged in the first biological terrorism in the United States in, 19, in the 1980s. They, what? Yeah, I he, never heard about that. Oh, well, yeah. His, his, his whole cult, they were, they were trying to do voter, uh, or they were trying to take over political control in Oregon. And they did- Oh, with the salmonella. Yeah. Oh my God. Okay. I did hear about this. That, that was Osho's cult. That was Osho's cult. Yeah. Now his claim is okay, that it wasn't. that he has a cult. I didn't know about that either. Well, well, the claim is, is that it wasn't him. It was this woman kind of who ended up underneath uh, him. Yeah. She just took the fall for it. Right. He, was, he didn't know anything about it. Right? Yeah. That's, that's sort of the, yeah, the they idea. Po- they poisoned a, uh, a, a food bar or something, a cafeteria. There, with well, it salmonella. was multiple restaurants. Multiple restaurants. Yeah, yeah and, they, and like some odd eight hundred people. They were trying to get the voters sick so they couldn't go and vote. Yeah, that that was that the was election. the whole trick. That was Osho. So no, wow. not not a good guy. Uh, <laughs> I mean, yeah, he has some beautiful statements about love. Uh, you know, and and some of his books are are beautiful to read, no doubt. But behind all that is a human being with some very very odd. Uh, uh, very troubling. I would say that qualifies as fucked up. Yeah, yeah sure. Absolutely. So, okay. Uh, non-attachment. I think it's about, you know, freedom and giving up control because you can't control anything except you, your own actions, yes. your own thoughts, what's inside of you. You cannot control other people. Right. And that's a hard lesson for some people to learn. Right. Okay. So why non-attachment is one of the keys to a happy life and relationship by Raffello Manicorda from uh, Elephant Journal. You might be surprised to hear that non-attachment is an important quality for relationships. Isn't non-attachment something very similar to indifference? Actually, not at all, he says. Non-attachment is a highly beneficial state of mind in all fields of life and in our relationships with people, possessions, and even our own physical body. Non-attachment is not indifference. It's important to clarify this common misunderstanding. Indifference means a lack of interest and sympathy toward a person or object. Non-attachment, on the other hand, refers to the state of mind of being objective and not clinging, and it springs from a deep consideration of the conditions of human existence. Imagine Now, and this is exactly what you were saying, non-attachment is not the same as detachment, which he's calling, like, indifference. Right. Yeah. Imagine that you go on an organized trip with a group of people you don't know. 
The participants are coming from all over the world, and you're not going to see them again after the holiday is over. In the group, there's someone you find really attractive and interesting. You know that you'll share only a short time with him or her, but you intend to make the most out of the few days that you can spend together. You want to live these moments with intensity and passion, knowing that they won't last forever, and that you, and that you will have to part ways. You accept the situation and still open yourself fully to the experience. There isn't any indifference here, right? Still, the circumstances of this encounter force you to be non-attached to the other person and the experience you shared, unless you want to suffer greatly, because it's not going to last forever. And that's like everything. Nothing is going to last forever. Yep. This too shall pass. You might think that our intimate relationships do not develop under the same conditions as the example above, but is that really so? After all, we human beings always share a finite lapse of time together, just like the people on a package trip. The major difference is that in real life, you actually don't have any clue about when your shared time with someone is going to come to an end. The circumstances of life, the frailty of the human condition, the instability of emotions, all of these factors make relationships much less predictable than we usually believe. If you meditate deeply upon the impermanence of life, non-attachment will be the inevitable consequence. But just as in the example above, non-attachment in real life does not mean indifference. On the contrary, it will empower you to live every relationship with love and intensity, knowing that it could end at any moment. This is like, life is short. You know, we don't know how much time we have. We don't know how long anything is going to last. Mm -hmm. So just be here in the present moment and enjoy it while it lasts. This is really relevant to my thoughts about marriage. Ah. Because I think so many people try to manage their feelings of fear and anticipating suffering by doing something like getting married, which when you get married, you promise to I, – I don't know if it's literally you promise to love someone forever, but that's what a lot of people understand marriage to be. Sure. And that is not an enforceable promise. You can't or at least sign, it shouldn't be. <laughs> you, well, how are you going to enforce it? You can't. Your heart can be like a wild animal if you stop. Maybe you don't intend to stop loving that person, but it's possible that you could. And you can't force yourself to feel love if you don't feel it. Yeah. And so how can you sit there and promise to love someone forever? You can promise to be there for them, to support them, to be with them physically, to live with them to merge your money, to merge your possessions and so forth. But you can't promise to love someone forever. And at the end of the day, I think that's what a lot of people are looking to get out of marriage, that someone will promise to love them forever. And that's just not something you can promise. So why not try to make your relationships something that you're constantly evaluating and choosing to stay in at every moment? And because they might not last forever, but we can choose in this moment to be present and to be in the relationship. And that actually makes it more meaningful if we're constantly choosing to be here rather than just locked in at one point in the past. And we have to continue with that commitment into the future, no matter what. Well, I think you're hitting on something pretty important. I mean, marriage comes with a contract, right? Um, I am not a fan of contracts. And that contract, I think, is a shorthand. It is an attempt at a guarantee so that you don't have to do that constant reassessment that you just described, because look, practicing the, what, what's being described here as far as non-attachment, which largely I agree with. Like I, I, I think they're, you know, this is in many ways a beautiful thing. It may not be for everybody, but 
you're going to have to work at this. You're going to have to do work when you're, when you are in a relationship that is based upon non-attachment and say that person goes and does something with somebody else or whatever, uh, you know, that you may not like, you have to check in on those feelings and you have to work through those feelings and it's hard Yeah, and it's really hard to do that. And so the idea that you, you put a person into a contract where if you do something wrong out of this, I get instant restitution, be it through whatever happens in divorce court or something. Yeah, well, it's tempting uh, to think that you can control another person like that. Right, <laughs> right. Or that somehow you lay down some kind of social moray on them that, no, you're not allowed to do that or, or you're going to be shamed and shunned or something like this, you know, like that's a very attractive proposition when in comparison to what, what's being described here in comparison to, Oh, uh, you know, well, yeah, I'll just, if you do that, then I'm just going to reassess how I feel about things, how I feel about you, how I feel about what's going on for me. I'm going to have to look at my feelings. I can't just say, well, that piece of goddamn paper says that you're mine. Uh, you know, I have to do constant check-ins. So I get it. This is hard work, but that's, that's, that's what makes love so great. That's the great, that's why it's such a great payoff because there, you do have to put that work into it. Uh, and that's, that's part of what makes it so beautiful. But anyway, yeah, please I think it's harder worth work to suffer and struggle because you have an idea in your head that you can control somebody or that you can make them promise to love you forever or something like that. When in reality, that's just not how it oh, works. Overall, that's the harder life because guess what? Your life is going to be filled with one thing, disappointment. At every second, at every yeah, turn, at, with everyone, suffering because hurt. so many people aren't going to follow the rules that you thought is how life is supposed to work. Yeah. And you're not allowing for the dynamism that is the human condition. Uh, I, I mean, oh, yeah. Anyway, please continue. Um, I mean, I think we've had a great discussion on it so far, but um, there's more to the article. If yeah. you want to keep going. Okay. But just as in the example above with the, the trip that you don't that it's ending in a week and, you know, you can't get attached to the person, I guess. Uh, but just as in the example above, non-attachment in real life does not mean indifference. On the contrary, it will empower you to live every relationship with love and intensity, knowing it could end at any moment. Non-attachment is a state of mind that will help you both in times of joy and sorrow. Life is a mixture of pleasure and pain, of comfort and hardship. We cling to pleasure, hoping it will never end, and we are overwhelmed by pain, fearing that it will never end. By practicing non-attachment, we become able to endure difficult moments with a certain sense of humor, knowing that, as a wise saying goes, this too shall pass. In the same way, we can enjoy the beautiful moments of life without being tainted by the fear that they will end, as they undoubtedly will. All this doesn't mean that you need to live in constant insecurity, fearing that everything you rely upon could crumble at any moment. Quite the opposite. Not being attached to success and failure or pleasure and pain brings you back into connection with the only thing that is invariably present, stable, and safe, your center of pure awareness and pure love. So, yeah, all you have is this moment, right? Mm -hmm. Things could change in a heartbeat, and they will change inevitably. That's the only thing you know is that things are going to change. So don't get stuck at a point in the past. Make sure you're, you're living in the now and you're being present. Yeah, absolutely. Right. I'm trying, I'm reminded of the old phrase, what is it, to, to live to to live for today and love for tomorrow is the wisdom of a fool, because uh, tomorrow's promise to no one. I think Tom mm, Jones said that in yeah. the beginning of a song. And, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of truth to that. The thing is, people think about that too much externally. I think that, you know, to love 
to love for today is what it's recommending to do. But that includes yourself, you know, like like really loving yourself. And then because if you don't automatically love yourself, I don't really think that you can have a healthy, expressive love towards anybody else. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I do I do want to say, like in hearing this, like one of my favorite my favorite description of love is actually from Robert Heinlein. Not that I want to quote Robert Heinlein on, on the regular. He says some very ugly things as well, but he had the beautiful. Uh, uh, Wait, uh, what did you're ruining everybody? Why did Robert A. Heinlein say that was bad? <laughs> oh, uh, an armed society is a polite society. Oh, that's, that's utter horseshit. No, he that's said a, that. Yeah, that's a society of fear. That's not a polite society. Why? You're only nice because you're afraid somebody's going to blow your face yeah, off. That's Give me a break. Nice. I agree. Uh, but his quote on love, which is, um, you know, love is when your happiness or when someone else's happiness is completely intertwined with your own. Yeah. I don't think that I don't think that stands against non-attachment mm-hmm. at all. I think it, it's part of embracing that is that you recognize that that happiness, there's happiness all around. Anyway. Anyway. We are now in segment four. We talked right through that segment. Wow, okay. (laughs) Or right through that bumper. Yeah, all right. Well, that was pretty good. Yeah, let's uh, let's rock and roll. Okay, we got a listener question. And now, we try not to make the show too political, but this isn't really political. It's just a question that kind of has to do with politics. It's a relationship question. It's a relationship question, of course, as we always do in the fourth segment. And by the way, if you have relationship questions you want to ask us on the show, go to sexandsciencehour.com, click the contact uh, page, and you can send us anonymous email, or you can email us at show at sexandsciencehour.com directly, or you can go to the Sex and Science Hour podcast community on Facebook and post a question there, if you don't mind being if you maybe you could use a sock if you uh, really want to be more yeah, anonymous, sock account, <laughs> or you can use your regular account. Anyway, um, somebody asked in the Sex and Science Hour podcast group, and I'm going to change this question a little bit because it was about a specific political ideology. But I'm just going to generalize it to any political nah. ideology. Okay, so they posted a post from somebody else, and then they said, "What are your thoughts on this?" So, and the post that they're asking if we agree with is. Is sharing a political ideology sufficient, uh, a sufficient basis to form a romantic relationship? A person can match your political ideology, but yet be verbally abusive in their relationships. A person can think the same way you do about politics, yet think that beating their children or demeaning them is an acceptable way to raise them. Mm-hmm. If you want a meaningful relationship with another person, the journey of self-knowledge is key. That journey includes looking at one's childhood and upbringing and discovering one's emotional hurts that continue to manifest as dysfunction later in life. Without taking steps toward that path, a person who matches your political ideology can still be destructive in their relationships with others. Only someone who is actively working on understanding themselves and bettering their communication can be in a healthy, long-term romantic relationship. If you're wondering how to make this journey but don't know where to start, I recommend these two books. And he says the two books he recommends are Healing the Child Within by Charles Whitfield, M.D., and Nonviolent Communication, A Language of Life by Marshall Marshall Rosenberg, Ph.D. Which we've talked about many a time on the show. Yeah, I haven't heard of that other book, Healing the Child Within, but I mean, Mm -hmm. it sounds good, right? Um, It's one of the best decisions you can make. You won't regret it. So basically, our question asker wants to know, do we think this person is right? Is... um, is political ideology is sharing a political view a good basis for forming a relationship? Is it necessary but not sufficient, or does it not even matter at all? Sure. Do you want to go first? Sure. Or? Yeah, I can go first. It's uh, up to you. Unless okay. you do. <laughs> I mean, I can. But... 
Uh, yeah, you go first. What do you think? Okay. Um, I think, uh, I don't think sharing a political ideology, A, is required. Um, I don't think it's actually a very good basis either. Um, and that's because, so there's, there's different kinds of ideologies, I think, right? And, and we could quibble over what these terms should be, uh, because I think people can be apolitical, which means that political ideologies generally don't matter. There's kind of going with the flow. Yeah. Um, just like I think, you know, in with religion, which is another important ideological spectrum, yep. right? Uh, you could be atheist, you could be religious, you could be, I suppose, agnostic, which is the religious version of apolitical. Uh, and within religious, there's Jewish, Catholic, Jainish, all exactly. these other, yeah, Jainish, all yeah. these <laughs> other religions, you know, right. possible flavors of it. So here's the thing, and I think this is kind of what was being hinted at with what was being recommended. Um, what there isn't an a version of like a political agnostic or asexual or something like that is a goal orientation. Okay. There is no, there is no, like, I don't have a goal because honestly, even if you don't have a goal and your goal in life is to just go with the flow, that's your goal orientation. All right. <laughs> like you're, that's still, that's still what you want out of life is to just ride the wave, you know, and that's fine. Um, so I think that what really matters isn't politics. A person could be an anarchist and they could be in love with somebody that's what in their mind would be a statist. That's what that's the term. An they authoritarian. Would use. Yeah. An authoritarian. Right. OK. But if they had the same goals in life, same same place they're trying to get to in whatever time frame it happens to be, I think they could get along smashingly, swimmingly. Uh, for example, I've said this. In fact, you and I did a special for my Patreon for Sovereign Tech. Uh, called the relationship rhombus show yes. and we, we kind of talked about this and I said, it was like, you know what, if somebody was a hedonist as in ethical, philosophical hedonism, okay. If somebody was a hedonist, no matter what their political spectrum was, I guarantee I could get along with them much better than other people of my political that, that fit within my political uh, uh, ideology, I guess. Um, so that's, that's my point is that, yeah, it's a hedonist. It, what do you mean when you say that? Somebody well, who likes pleasure? Well, y yes, someone who believes that the 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 purpose of life is the pursuit of pleasure and 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 engaging in pleasure, you know. Does that mean at the expense of other people? No, absolutely not. That's that, so if you go to Wikipedia and you type in hedonism, I guarantee you what the first words it's not going to say is drinks, debaucherous does drugs and all that. No, what it's going to give you is a description of ethical hedonism. Okay. Which is the single most ancient ideology humanity has. You can find it in the oldest texts and it has, it has almost nothing to do with drinking or drugs or not that I have any problem with any of those uh, whatsoever. I don't, but it has nothing to do with that. So, but that, that's my point is that what really matters, like this person described how to raise a child, like, and that, and ha even having a child, all those are goals. Those are what matter. The politics, honestly, like, like re really don't because the goals are where the ethics are at, you know? Um, so yeah, that's, that's, that's my, my answer to it is that no, it's, it's a terrible basis. Um, I mean, it can be important to you if you want, because mm -hmm. maybe that way you have a similar language that you're speaking and maybe a similar reaction to some things. But the most important thing in a relationship is having, in my opinion, is having similar goals like you and I have, Stephanie. We have very we have very similar goals, even yeah. though I mean, 
well, our work isn't too dissimilar, but even though it's not the same exact work, our goals are very much the same and, and we enjoy a similar lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so, or we appreciate a similar lifestyle. Uh, anyway, yeah, go ahead. I think we do have similar goals and similar values, but we also have similar political and philosophical views. True. And I think that comes from just all the other things we have in common. I think it springs out of it. It's not really the basis for our relationship itself. Mm-hmm. It's just that we happen to have come to the same political and philosophical kind of conclusions based on who we are as people and, va- and our values. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'll, I'll just say one last thing quick, if I can, um, you know, with my, like with my podcast, Sovereign Tech, kind of a one way street. Right. But I know that a lot of my listeners, most of like, you know, my th- I, thousands of listeners, most of them do not agree with me when it comes to politics, mm-hmm. when it comes to how I think about that sort of stuff. But our goals are the same. We want privacy. We want to encrypt things. We want to, you know, how does technology make us more uh, personally free and all that? Our goals are exactly the same. So what I think about politics generally doesn't matter, you know, whether they agree with it and they'll tell me when they disagree, you know? Uh, so, so that's, that's the real basis is, is goal orientation, in my opinion. Yeah. Now I, I pretty much completely agree with you. I would just add a couple of little things. Please, I can see why people are tempted to date or start relationships with those who are sort of in their political niche or mm-hmm. have similar, especially if that person is is really passionate about politics, is like some kind of political activist. Mm-hmm. Like, for example, you know, some people are like environmentalists and they're going to, I don't know, g- global warming rallies together and protests and things sure. like that. And they're eating vegan. They're eating at the vegan cafe afterwards. And so they see that person and they're like, oh, they're kind of cute and they like to do the same things I like to do. And they're passionate about the same passions I have. That's very attractive and that's very sexy, Mm -hmm. you know. And so I can really see why people think that is just a perfect foundation for a relationship. Mm -hmm. And in some ways it is, but in some ways it's not. Because like this, like the like the poster said in that in that question, you know, People can ascribe to a a community or a political niche, and they can, in their personal life, they can completely contradict the principles of that that they're supposed to hold. I know there's, you know, there's prominent male feminists that get accused of sexually harassing and raping women. Right. Which is like the, it's like the complete hypocrisy of what they're supposed to be doing. Yeah. There's prominent evangelical Christians who get, you know outed for uh, cheating on their spouses being for gay. being secretly gay, you know, meth and massages or whatever that <laughs> mega church <laughs> yeah. pastor did. There's yeah. one every week, you know, or stealing money from the embezzling money from the congregation or whatever. Yep. There's hypocrisy in every movement. And often some of the most prominent people are the biggest hypocrites. And actually, we're all hypocrites in some ways. We all have contradictions within ourselves. And sometimes it takes a good partner to point those out. But sometimes the contradictions are so bad that you actually wouldn't want that person as a partner (laughs) so just because somebody is in the same politics niche as you are does not mean that they're a good person does not even mean that they live according to the principles they claim to espouse right right so it is not necessarily it it for you it for some people it might be necessary to find a partner who shares your political ideas but it's not sufficient it's not a sufficient basis for a relationship yeah now, I agree with what the poster said about um, it's very important to heal from your childhood trauma yep. and to address if you grew up in a dysfunctional family. And everybody did to a certain extent, you know, to to a degree. Right. Some more than others. But 
everybody had stuff that happened to them as a child that affected who they are as adults. And it's going to come out when you're fighting with your partner, right. when you have a conflict with your partner, or maybe you avoid conflict, you know, because of defense strategies that you learned in your childhood to deal sure. with your parents and get through it. Um, it's going to come out in your lifestyle. It's going to come out in your habits. For example, drinking, smoking, those kind of behaviors that we do to self-medicate ourselves when we're feeling pain. Right. You know, it's going to come out in all different kinds of ways. And especially if you become a parent, it's going to come out big time. Oh, yeah. Because, because that's when people <laughs> activate the programming of what was done to them as child. As yeah. A child. You're going to be constantly reminded of what it was like to be a child because you got one. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And now you're on the other end of it. And if you don't consciously break the cycle and make the choice to make changes of what you want to how you want to treat your children compared to how your parents treated you. Mm -hmm. If you don't make that a conscious process, you will usually just end up repeating the patterns that you saw because they were done to you. Yeah. So um, I think that is very important. And whether somebody has done the work to try to heal their old emotional wounds and to try to become a better communicator and to get to know themselves better, to have more a greater level of self-knowledge, I think is a better indicator of whether you're going to be able to have a good relationship with them, a lasting, loving relationship mm -hmm. with them than whether they share your political ideology. Yeah. I think that's more important. Yeah. I mean, certainly, you know, if you're, if your goals are, can, I mean, then they can be, maybe they're political of some kind. Well then yeah, politics does start mattering, but it's only because it's part of that goal orientation, you know, in my opinion. Yeah, so. absolutely. And like I said too, you know, when people have similar values, often they come to similar conclusions in terms yes. of politics and interests and things like that. Um, and if it's really important to you to have a to be able to share those activities with a partner or those passions, then maybe you do have to find someone who's in your political niche. But it can't be just anybody. It right. has to be somebody who is going to who who has worked on themselves and who has become a better communicator and a better partner by healing their old emotional wounds. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, and, and I'll, you know, I'll just, for myself, I'll end by saying, I mean, I've always, I've had this little rule for myself uh, for as long as I can remember, as long as I was interested in having relationships of any kind. Uh, I mean, frankly, if somebody's not into Star Trek, pff, it's over. I mean, that that is the basis of every single relationship. <laughs> well, that brings up a good point, too. Can you have a relationship if both people have done the, the work on themselves and have tried to, you know, heal themselves and get ready as best they can to be in a relationship, can you have a successful relationship with somebody who your political views are not completely aligned? I say maybe it's a little more challenging, but it can be done. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. But if they're not into Star Trek, <laughs> go shit yourself. Well, I what, mean. About, <laughs> what about Star Wars? I hate Star Wars. Well, Star Wars is Obviously, Star that's Trek. not a deal breaker. No, completely. no, that's not a deal breaker. I understand. <laughs> but Star Trek? Deal breaker. All right. Deal well, breaker. we know Brian's deal breakers now. And speaking of deal breakers, our show is over, but we you are coming back for the after show, so stay tuned. Thanks for Game joining over. us this week. Play again next week.
sponges, and rubber bands. Those are just some of the things that were bought on stuff.sexandsciencehour.com this week. <laughs> wow, that was great. Why did it take four years or four seasons to come up with that little opening? Well, I don't know. I guess that's what's just, those were what was in the mix this week. I love and it. And there's okay. all kinds of other stuff, too. This is very interesting. Well, let's... <laughs> Welcome to the after show here on Sex and Science Hour. In case you're not familiar with this, this is the part where we promote our Amazon link, which is our Amazon affiliate link, which is stuff.sexandsciencehour.com. If you go to that, it'll take you to Amazon. You can do your normal shopping. It's not going to affect the price you pay, but it is going to let Amazon know that we told you to go there and get that stuff. And they will thank us by giving us a little bit of uh, credit or money based on what you bought. And that helps us support our show. It also gives us content to talk about on our after show because we get a list of things that got purchased. We can't see who bought them. We can only see what was purchased. So this makes for a very interesting discussion because we get to speculate about who bought them and why. (laughs) Stuff.sexandsciencehour.com to take part in our after show. Now, I, I mentioned sea sponges this week. Somebody did get some sea sponges. They got a pack of 12, actually. And now they're listed as... Natural silk sea sponges for cosmetic use, 1.5 to 3 inches, Uh, pack of 12. I know where those are going. Yes, exactly. Well, these aren't, I I was going to say, these aren't always used for applying makeup. They can be. They can be used for cleaning your face or, you know, putting on or taking off makeup, I suppose. The face? They can be, they can even be used for um, nail polish remover. Uh. You know, like you soak one, like, um... A lot of nail salons, they have those things where you could stick your finger in and it's like a sponge with yes. like nail polish remover at the bottom and it absorbs it. And then you just twist your finger and it removes it. Um, it could be like that. But people also use these as tampons, especially yes. the small size ones. I have used sea sponge tampons and they're great. They're awesome. The only downside is they don't have a string, so they can be. Able, you have to be able to willing to uh, kind of retrieve them. Got to reach in there sometimes. Yeah, you can't be afraid of doing that. But as long as you're willing, um, you know they make a great uh, alternative to chemical bleached, only usable once tampons, and they're natural. Woo. So yeah, this is a pack of twelve for twelve ninety nine. Prime shipping. Hey, all good. right. Uh, once a month, right? It'll get you, get you through the year. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> That's one for each month. You don't even have to reuse it. Nice. Okay. So um, somebody got two packs of rubber bands, like a giant bag of rubber bands, a, ha- a pound of rubber bands. And I don't know if they're making a rubber band ball or what they're using them for, but you know, this was pretty cheap. It's only five bucks, but it's assorted sizes and colors of rubber bands. And um, you literally can make a big ball out of all of them. Yeah, I was a big fan. I had one of these when I was younger. Um, I was always interested in alternative projectiles. Uh, I had I had a rubber. <laughs> alternative projectiles. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I made a potato gun. Oh, that was awesome. That oh thing was the God, best. That sounds in fact, really fun. Me and my friends, we went to Lowe's, and like when we were checking out, the guy just kind of stops for a second. He goes, "Oh, I know what you guys are doing." <laughs> like he, 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 as soon as he saw the supplies there again, it's like, it's like, wait a minute, it's got like four lighters, they have tubes of such and such size, and they got the cuts, it's like, what is this? And oh yeah, we, I mean, we experimented the shit out of that, that was a hell of a time. What did um, you shoot with the potato cannon? Uh, just potatoes. No, but uh, I mean, oh, like, what was the target? We just launched them into the tree line, you know, and just, <laughs> just whatever we, I mean, we, you know, we didn't did want to Did they like splat against the trees or? Yeah, some of them would, depending upon, I mean, you know, we did some long barrels, some short barrel. We tried hold, what was it like to hold it and everything. And Wow. 
Yeah. Did you create a sawed-off potato gun? Yeah, tried that. Oh, and, my God. Oh, it was so funny. My mother was flipping out. I mean, she <laughs> she did not like that at all. That actually does sound really fun. And, yeah, I mean, and out in the country, you could hear it for, for like a mile away. It's like, poof, poof. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was nuts. You know, anyway, lots of fun. And, and you, you get to understand, you know, chemistry. I mean, that, like, there's genuine things to learn about that, how that works. Because it does work so goddamn well. Uh, anyway, so I, I, I still know how to do that. That's Awesome. Yeah, yeah. Uh, great use for hairspray. So anyway, um. <laughs> But uh, I had rubber band guns, and in fact, there was one that was very popular. It was like the R1000, it was called, and and it was the cylinder, and you would just keep attaching on some odd 100, 150 maybe it was, somewhere in that range of rubber bands, and then you could just... I mean, you could just be oh, launching rubber bands cool. off this thing, and it would spin, you know, as it was launching one of these, you know, 150 or so uh, rubber bands. But anyway, that was that thing was was pretty awesome. So oh, maybe that's that what they're really doing, cool. too. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, that's a creative use for rubber bands. Sure. Definitely. I was just thinking, you know, they're bolting their potato chip bag closed or something. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody bought gecko food. It's Pangea fruit mix with insects, crested gecko complete diet. So this is like for feeding to a lizard, particularly a gecko. Okay. 20 bucks for a bag of crickets and fruit. Nice. Yep. Those crickets, uh, you know, crickets, I hear a lot about crickets being a sustainable protein source. Like yes. In the U.S., there's a taboo against eating insects. Yeah, I know. But, I mean, why not? We eat sea bugs, right? Shrimp and lobsters are yep. sea, basically sea insects. Why yep. not? Why not actual land insects? <laughs> Yeah, I know. People make like minds. bars. They make protein bars there's, out of crickets yeah, there's and everything. Cricket bars. There's cricket flour yeah. that you can bake with that's very high in protein. Um, I don't know how it tastes. I, I hear it tastes a little bit like popcorn or something, but mm. um, I'd be curious to try it. So anyway, so, but this person is not eating it themselves, probably. We don't know. I mean, they could be snacking on it, but it looks like they're feeding it to their lizard. Instead. Ah. <laughs> Somebody bought the Canon EOS uh, 6D digital SLR camera uh, accessory pack. So it's like a it's a accessory pack for a high end camera with a tripod, a uh, two gigabyte uh, SD card, a couple sorry two thirty two gigabyte SD cards. Sorry, it's getting late. A cleaning kit, a battery, a Polaroid flash, and some other accessories like a case and things like that. Uh, I don't know how much they paid for it because it doesn't say the price, but that's cool. We had a uh, three-pack of Mr. Shield for iPhone SE uh, screen protectors. Okay. And a Motorola screen protector as well. We had an iPhone 5S case, uh, shock-absorbing clear, so like just a clear case. Yep. Those are always kind of cool. Yeah, handy. A 12-pack of Sharpie black permanent markers. I hope you're drawing dicks on your friends' faces with those <laughs> when they fall asleep and pass out from too much beer. Yeah. Um, but, you know, who knows what they could be doing with that. Maybe they're just getting office supplies. Maybe the rubber bands and Sharpies are all for the same office. I never know. So we got a USB uh, Bluetooth low-energy micro-adapter... Uh, I... I still have no idea what this does. Okay, adds Bluetooth support to Windows 10 or Linux PCs oh, that don't already little, have it. It's a dongle that just adds Bluetooth to a computer a that doesn't dongle. have it. Yeah. Thank you. Yep. Yes, it's a dongle. And Those are handy. Yeah. thirteen ninety five to add Bluetooth. So that's good. Uh, somebody got a waterproof armband that you can put your phone and your keys in when you go running Ooh. for Samsung S7 Edge. Yeah, I need to get one of those. 
Yeah, I think that'd be really helpful. Me too. I put it in my pocket, and when I work out, and I and I refuse to buy a phone. Like I'm not doing Bluetooth headphones, and I refuse to buy a phone that doesn't have a headphone jack. Yeah, uh, or any fucking device that doesn't have one. Yeah, but the cord gets in the way when you're lifting weights. Well, right, that's the thing, especially with the adjustable dumbbells. Yeah, like because there's that part that that knob that kind of sticks out, mm-hmm. and and it'll Big get problem. stuck when I'm doing kind of upright rows or anything like that, or, or uh, bent over rows. So. Yeah, this is a good this is a good thing. I, I need to get good. one of these. All yeah, right. and then you don't have to put it in your sweaty pocket either. That's my biggest problem. Yeah. It's up against my skin and it's like I'm sweating into the phone and I'm afraid I'm gonna da- well, damage it. So here's the other thing. Those same dumbbells can get stuck when I'm doing curls, can get stuck in my in the pocket. Oh. Like it'll just catch the flap of the pocket of my shorts. So a lot of times I, I work out Greek style. You know, where, where I'm not so wearing you don't even have pants. You could put it in. No, there's no clothes. Yeah. It's, it's, it's nude. And so an armband is perfect. I can have my keys and everything, you know, and it, well, not that I need my keys with me when I'm working out nude in the house, <laughs> but I, I, there's advantages well, here. If all else fails, you could always keister them. But don't. <laughs> okay. Uh, and the last item that I want to end off with tonight, short and sweet after show. Uh, somebody bought your book, Brian. Dark Ooh. Android 2017 edition, the No Nonsense Guide to Securing Their Smartphone and Taking Back Your Privacy by Brian Sovereign. You could use some reviews on that. You only got one review so far. It's a very kind review. So yes, and you could use more. more it's also them. a book that, and believe me, if you buy it now, it's fine. It's a book that will be. I actually plan on having an updated edition come out, uh, but you don't have to pay anything extra for it. 2018, obviously it's called the 2017 edition because mm-hmm. there's going to be a 2018 edition, but just in the 2017 edition alone, there's going to be an updated version. Uh, so that's one of the beauties of buying an ebook. I think a lot of, there's some people who are waiting for uh, paperback copies, mm-hmm. which I am planning on having come out. Um, but the, the advantage of an electronic edition is that it can be auto updated. Ah, yes, that uh, you is know, a big if I advantage. need to, yeah, if I need to, to add something or edit something or whatever. So, uh, so, you know, yeah, buy buy once and get it updated all year long. So buy once and get Brian in your Kindle forever. Woo! And Brian and, will promise to love you forever. I I will I will love you <laughs> in that way. It's going to be that's crazy. Right. All right. Well, that's it for this week. Thank Woo. you so much for joining us. This has been Sex and Science Hour. Go to our website, sexandsciencehour.com. Give us a follow on Twitter and join our Facebook group, Sex and Science Hour Podcast Community. 